Christ's victory is always, always advancing. And uh, we're going to be seeing that even in apparent defeat, uh, God's uh, victory advances. We're going to be continuing on in our series in 1 Samuel, chapter 28. This is the inerrant word of God. Beginning at verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please, heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And it is our glory to uh, seek to understand it, uh, to seek to worship you through it, to correct our lives uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would bless this, your people, that you would anoint me and keep me from error and just enable us, Father, in this a time of looking into your word to continue to worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as an exercise in understanding the gospel, I want you to at least consider the possibility that Saul was saved and that right now he's enjoying uh, eternal bliss with the, the Father. I know at least some Christians uh, would consider that thought to be very offensive. They would say, now, wait a minute, Saul was such a terrible guy. Look at all the bad things that he did to David. Uh, he doesn't deserve to be saved. Uh, look at, he took away David's wife, gave it uh, his, his wife to some other person. He killed all of those pastors uh, You've got to be kidding. You're saying that there's a possibility Saul is in heaven? Uh, that just does not seem fair. And if uh, any of those thoughts went through your mind when I said we want to have uh, kind of an exercise in looking at the possibility that Saul may be saved, uh, you probably need a refresher course in the gospel because none of us deserves to be saved. Every one of us deserves to burn in hell forever. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we were all by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. Just as the others. All by children, all by nature, children of wrath. Uh, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says, We have all become like one who is defiled, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted menstrual rag. That's the literal Hebrew. Outside of Christ, God considers all of us to be abominable in His sight. And we need to ask the question, what gave David the right to heaven? Was it because he wasn't a murderer like uh, Saul was? 
And I think we'd have to say, well, no. Just two chapters earlier, he almost killed the entire household of Abigail, right? And in 2 Samuel, he is indeed going to kill Uriah. Those are horrible sins. They are sins every Christian should avoid, obviously. But those are not the things that kept David out of heaven. Nor can we say that it was, well, David's righteous deeds outweighed his good deeds. Really, when you think about it, it's a blasphemous thought against uh, what Christ did on Calvary. Um, one rotten egg is going to make the whole omelet unacceptable, right? Listen to what David had to say as he describes his own wretched condition in Psalm 40. He says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. He says his iniquities were innumerable. They're more than the hairs of his head. That's a lot of iniquities, unless he was bald, but uh, I think the text implies he was not, okay, because they were innumerable. So it's not sin that keeps us out of heaven. It is a failure to repent of our sins and by faith lay hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, some people will say, yeah, but what about verse 16? Verse 16, doesn't that say that Saul had become God's enemy? Yes, it does. And James 4, verse 4, says to the church that he's addressing that believers, any time they willfully continue in their sin, they make themselves uh, God's enemy. Let me uh, read that for you. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he's saying that to believers in that church, that they have made themselves enemies of God. God didn't make them that way, but they had made themselves enemies of God. Now, it's true that in 1 John, even though it's, believers can backslide, and the Bible indicates you can backslide horribly, that it is impossible for a genuinely regenerated believer to persevere in sin. That's what 1 John makes very clear. Uh, it's called the perseverance of the saints. Many, many scriptures indicate that God's grace is going to cause true believers to eventually persevere and continue in his grace. Now, can I guarantee that Saul was saved? No, absolutely not. There are almost as many evidences he was not as they are, there are that he was. And in the past, we've already looked at the evidences in both directions on the state of Saul's uh, soul. Uh, we've seen that his times of repentance were so shallow, so shallow. And yet, on the other hand, he did repent from trying to kill Saul, uh, David on a number of occasions, did he not? And uh, you could go back and forth and debate that, and we're not going to do that this morning, you could b debate uh, the evidences which is stronger on either side and uh, still not know for sure. And I think a lot, God deliberately did that so that we would not presume upon his grace. Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards pointed out that there are uh, examples in the Scripture of people who we would have thought were saved, and yet in hindsight, from the Scriptures, we know that they were not. Judas would be one example. All of the disciples thought that Judas uh, was indeed saved. And then Jonathan Edwards points out the Scripture gives examples of people like Lot that we would have thought, there is no way that person could be a genuine. How in the world could he do the things that he did with his daughters and with others? And yet in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Lot was justified and his righteous soul, so he had a righteous soul, was vexed every day with the evil deeds of, of his neighbors. And so this morning... Uh, I want you to bear with me, and I want you to at least consider the possibility uh, that Saul uh, was saved and test the degree to which your heart really believes that our salvation depends on Christ's goodness, not upon our own goodness. And you don't have to be convinced of whether Saul was saved or he wasn't saved. That's not the point. We're going to use this as an example of our, uh, our real trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we can do that, I do need to set the context and we're going to begin at verse 15. It says, Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Where did Samuel come from? Well, the first thing I think we can say from this is he came from a place of peace, a place that had no disturbance. By contrast, 
it wasn't very comfortable for him to be coming back to earth. It was not a pleasant thing. Second, it was a place that was down. You can deduce that from his statement, why have you brought me up? If he's being brought up, his soul must have been down, right? I think you can deduce that. Third, it was a place that both Saul and Jonathan were headed towards the next day. If you take a look at verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You and your sons will be with me. So wherever it was that Samuel had come up from, Saul was going to be there as well. Now, what was that place? Couldn't be the grave, because we're going to see in the upcoming chapters that Saul and his sons didn't make it to the grave. Uh, they were hanging on the walls of one of the Philistine towns by the name of Beth Shan for quite some time. So he's not talking about his, uh, his uh, body. His soul was going to be with uh, Saul. And it's a place called Sheol in the Hebrew we saw last week and Hades in the Greek New Testament. So when Jesus says in the New Testament uh, to the Father, he says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, He's quoting the Old Testament psalm that says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol and Hades are the same place. One's a Hebrew word, the other's a Greek word. But Sheol or Hades had two compartments. There was a provisional hell, which two passages call, quote, the lowest part of Sheol, Deuteronomy 32, 22, Psalm 86, verse 13. Two passages call hell the lowest depths of Sheol, Isaiah 14, verse 15. Proverbs 9, verse 18. Now, here are the, some of the things that are associated with uh, that lower part of Sheol. Torment. And we read that from Luke 16 uh, last week. Pain and suffering. Psalm 116, verse 3. Sorrows. 2 Samuel 22, verse 6. Burning fire. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. And, of course, the Luke 16 passage as well. And we know there was consciousness there because there was a lot of passages that talk about these people in hell talking with each other. Uh, for example, Isaiah 14, verses 9 and 10, Ezekiel 32, 21 through 33, Luke 16. So that's lower Sheol. Upper Sheol was said in Luke 16 to be a long ways off and there to be a huge gulf between those two compartments. It was in the same place, but there's a huge gulf between those. It was a place of rest and comfort, Job 3, verses 11 through 19. It was called paradise and Abraham's bosom. When a believer died, he was said to be, quote, gathered unto his people or to have rested with his fathers. So it was a place of rest, joy, comfort, blessing, and fellowship, and both of those places were down. Now let me give you some examples of unbelievers who went down to Sheol. Isaiah 14, verse 15. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Concerning pagan uh, Egypt, which perished, uh, Ezekiel 31 says, It went down to hell, verse 15. I cast it down to hell together with those who descended into the pit, verse 16. They also went down to hell, verse 17. And the word hell in each of those verses I just read uh, is the Hebrew word for Sheol. So the hell portion of Sheol is definitely downstairs, okay? Uh, that's stated over and over again in Scripture. But the paradise portion of Sheol prior to the resurrection was also down. Uh, let me give you some examples. Jacob says, I will go down to my son in Sheol. Genesis 37, verse 35. Now, he believed that his son had been eaten by wild animals, so he's not planning to join him in a sepulcher or join him in, in some grave. He's talking about his soul going down to Sheol. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and brings up. In Isaiah 38, good king Hezekiah was about to die, and he describes his condition as being about to go down to Sheol, so that's where his soul was headed. It was headed down until God did a miracle and preserved his life through a healing. Um, in Psalm 30, David said that God had spared his life and brought his soul up from Sheol, verse 3, and kept it from going down to the pit, verse 9. Job 7, verse 9 says, He who goes down to Sheol does not come up. In John 17, 16, Job denies that anyone will be able to go down 
to the gates of Sheol to help him if he dies. And our text says that Samuel came up. And so prior to the resurrection, both places uh, were down. Well, that means that if Saul was to join Samuel in Sheol, it's not a slam dunk argument to know which part of Sheol. Did he go into the lower depths of Sheol, which would be hell, or did he go into the upper Sheol with Samuel uh, in paradise? So Samuel says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Uh, people who argue against my position could say, Phil, he's just saying you're going to be with me in Sheol. He's not saying which compartment he's going to be. I think the most natural reading is to say, especially when you consider the incredible gulf that's between lower Sheol and upper Sheol and where Abraham's implying to the rich man that he, the rich man's not with him, is he? He's implying you're a far ways off. You can't come to us. We can't come to you. And the most natural reading, I, I think, is to say that Saul was with Samuel the next day in paradise portion of Sheol. But I'm willing to admit, okay, it's not a slam dunk argument. You could, you could argue against that. But at least I've demonstrated that both Samuel and Saul went down to Sheol. Now, last week, Bill asked me a very good question. He said, okay, if every believer goes down to Sheol, then why was Elijah caught up to heaven, it says, in a chariot? Very good question. And what makes that question all the more interesting and provocative is that Jesus said this, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. John 3, 13, he says, no one has ascended to heaven. That means Elijah did not ascend to heaven. And people say, now wait a shake. Didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? Yes, he did. And we saw last week that both paradise and hell are in the depths of the earth. And in Luke uh, uh, chapter 16, where was Jesus' soul for three days and three nights? It was not in heaven. Because right immediately after his resurrection, Jesus said, I have not yet ascended to my father. John 20, verse 17. So if he hasn't ascended to his father, where has he been for the last three days? That, that's the question, okay? Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 gives us the answer. It says that Christ's soul was in the lower parts of the earth, the lower parts of the earth, and had not yet ascended to heaven. That's very crystal clear. Ephesians 4 verses 8 through 10. Acts 2, verses 31 through 32, says that Christ's soul was in Hades. Okay, that's the Greek word for Sheol. His soul was in His body was not in Hades, okay? His soul was in Hades. Romans 10, verse 7, makes clear that on the day of the resurrection, Jesus' soul came up from the dead, and He ascended out of the abyss. Out of the abyss. And, of course, Isaiah 14, verse 15, makes it very clear that the abyss and Sheol are synonyms for exactly the same thing. So Jesus' soul was in the abyss. It was in Sheol. Um, that's Romans 10. John 14 makes clear that uh, Christ had not yet prepared a place for his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you, but it had not yet been prepared. Now, when did he prepare it? We're not told exactly. Uh, but when he brought all of these souls out of Sheol, out of Hades, he emptied it out, Ephesians says, uh, there were spirits walking around on earth for at least a period of time, according to Matthew 27 and verse, um, let's see, yeah, verse 53. Now, this may seem strange to you, but this was the standard teaching of the Jews in the first century. This was the standard teaching of the church for the first 10 centuries, Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, all the saints went down to paradise, and after the resurrection, we go up to heaven, which is now where paradise uh, exists. Now, I know for some of you, this is a paradigm shift. It's like, whoa, it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around this. And, uh, and, and I want you to bear with me on this. The puzzle still comes. Why then does 2 Kings 2 verse 11 says that Elijah was caught up into heaven? And the answer really is quite simple. You just need to ask, what was caught up into heaven? Was it just his soul? No. It wasn't just his soul. His whole being, his body and his soul. His whole being was caught up into heaven. 
And so then you have to ask, does that mean that his body got glorified? Did he have a glorified body in heaven? And you look at the New Testament, the answer is quite clear. There is no one who had a glorified body prior to Jesus Christ. He was the first to rise from the dead with a glorified body. A lot of different scriptures on that. Acts 26, verse 23 would be uh, one of them. So saying that he was caught up to heaven proves too much. It proves he got a glorified body before Jesus got a glorified body. And that doesn't really fit. But we really don't need to go there if we understand how many heavens there are. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, says that there are three heavens. Let me list those for you. There is the heavens of the atmosphere. Okay, the birds fly in the heavens, right? And uh, the clouds are in the heavens. So there is the heavens of the atmosphere. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is the, the space into which the stars were placed. And the third heaven is the throne room of God. That's where we instantly go to when we die right now. That's where paradise is right now. But it wasn't in the Old Testament, and Elijah did not go to that third heaven. The only way that you can reconcile that 2 Kings uh, 2, verse 11 passage with all of the other passages that talk about the saints going down uh, to Sheol is to say that, as many translate it, he was caught up into the sky. That's all it's saying. He was caught by this chariot up into the sky, just like an airplane would be, and he was transported to some place where God buried him. (laughs) Before you guys start saying, whoa, boy, that sounds real freaky, Phil. (laughs) I I want you to realize that if you keep reading in that 2 Samuel passage, that's exactly the interpretation that the inspired prophets, that's their inspired interpretation that the inspired prophets that were surrounding Elijah gave. So it's not so weird to them, might be to us, but it wasn't so weird uh, to them. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, Elisha sees Elijah being caught up into the air in this, uh, this fiery chariot. He comes back across the Jordan River. He meets the prophets over there and they say, hey, Elisha, can we go and search for Elijah? And here's what they're, they're absolutely convinced of this. Let me quote from them that the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley, verse 16. So they think, okay, he's been caught up into the sky, sure, but where is he? He's been put into some valley or into uh, some mountain. Now, at first, Elisha wouldn't let them look, but upon uh, their insistence, he relented. They searched for three days. They can't find him. So why would God do this? Well, I believe God did this because he did not want them to make a shrine out of the grave of Elijah or make relics out of their bones. And there would have been a strong temptation to do this. Uh, They were very tempted to do this with the body of Moses. And so God took Moses away from the sight of the people. And what did he do with Moses' body? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 34, verse 6 sometime, you will see it says clear cut there. God took Moses away and he buried him in an undisclosed place. It says what the valley was, but it doesn't say where it was. It was some undisclosed place. And apparently the Jews were trying to find this body. And Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 9 says that there was this warfare between Michael the archangel and between Satan on a dispute over what? A dispute over the body of Moses. Satan wanted to have that body. Why would he want to have that body? I think he wanted to turn it into relics or into a shrine just like the Roman Catholics do, which diverts people from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God did not want that to happen. So what God did with Moses is identical to what I believe God did uh, with Elijah. And uh, anyway, if you want more scriptures on the place of the dead in the Old and the New Testaments, uh, I can give you a paper. But I think I've given enough between last week and this week uh, to, to prove that Samuel was down in paradise Sheol. Now, with that as a background, I think we can adequately wrestle with the, the rest of the text fairly quickly. Why did God bring Samuel up from Sheol? This is an unusual miracle we saw last week that there are various reasons why it is absolutely certain that mediums do not have the power to bring anybody up from the dead. She had no power to bring uh, Samuel up from the dead. In fact, God completely bypassed her. What happened 
is that the moment Saul makes his request, Samuel appears before she's able to do anything in terms of her, uh, her rituals that she normally goes through to summon a demon. So when Samuel comes up, he doesn't give her the time of day. He doesn't look at her, doesn't speak to her. He only speaks to Saul. This was only done for Saul. So if she did not have the power to do this, God alone did it. And the question comes, why did God do it? Why did God give Saul the time uh, of day on this issue? To me, this is a hint that God cared about Saul. It's a hint to me that he was a believer. Otherwise, why would he have messed? He didn't mess with other, uh, other unbelievers like this. Why did he do this? It's a hint that he was a believer. And yes, he was a believer in unbelievable bondage to Satan. We saw that before. He was a believer that was backslidden. But God many times will bring believers into a state of bondage and misery and discipline and even bring them to the brink of death or even bring them to death in order to bring them to repentance and to bring them to restoration. Why does he do that? Because he cares about us. He cares for his people. He does not want them to be comfortable in their sin. And, of course, Saul was not comfortable in his sin. He was in incredible distress. Uh, back in the 1980s, when I was in the PCA, there was a pastor who had a crush on a woman in his congregation. I think I've shared this story before, but it illustrates this so well. He had a crush on a woman in his congregation, and he talked her into divorcing her husband, and he was in the process of divorcing his wife when the presbytery found out and immediately stepped in, and uh, he was deposed from office, but he wouldn't repent. The discipline, and you know there were steps of discipline within the church, heated up. He still would not repent. He just got angry at Presbytery. He got angry at his wife for fighting his divorce. And uh, just as one example, he took a claw hammer into his house uh, and just took out every wall, just demolished all of the drywall on the main floor. Why he did it? Maybe... He figured if she's going to get the house, she's going to get a messed up house. But he showed so much evidence of blindness and bondage, just like, like a soul did. And I remember spending an hour with him, pleading with him from the scriptures, and he just would not repent. In fact, he was absolutely convinced that everything he was doing was okay with God. He would not be convinced uh, from the, the scriptures. In fact, things were so bad in his life, I, I became absolutely convinced he was not regenerate. I, I didn't see how he, he could possibly be a genuine believer. Well, since that incident, I've learned you've got to just leave those things in God's hands, uh, even with a, a situation like Saul. We cannot judge people's hearts. Anyway, this pastor's hard-heartedness led to church discipline. And by the way, when we excommunicate people, hopefully not too frequently, but when we excommunicate people, we're not guaranteeing that they're unbelievers. Matthew 18 says you treat them as if they are a heathen and a publican. We don't know the state of their heart. We just deal with them objectively. You're not acting like a believer, so you're going to be outside the church. We will treat you like an unbeliever. But the whole purpose is a, an act of love to try to restore people into the church if they are indeed uh, genuine believers. Anyway, back to the story. When the former pastor was excommunicated, God's discipline in his life was instantaneous and became extremely heavy. Everything started falling apart. God was beating up on him financially, beating up on him socially, and in other ways. But like Saul, he didn't repent. And at some point, and I forget how many weeks later it was, I didn't uh, keep any record of this, but at some point, uh, God took him out with a rare infection of the brain. Somehow, the, it, something had crossed over his brain barrier, and he was, uh, had a brain infection. He was dying a very miserable death in the hospital. And to our joy... Uh, when the elders came to visit him in the hospital, because we still, we loved him even though he's kicked out, right? We still love him and we're concerned about him. When they came to the hospital, to our joy, we found that he had not only fully repented, 
He was thankful for our discipline. He was thankful for God's discipline. He was thankful that God was killing him with this brain disease, which was uh, incurable. Why? Because it had brought him to poverty of soul. It had shaken him out of his, uh, out of his lethargy. And let me give you a little bit of a secret here. When nothing happens to people after they have been excommunicated, it is very, very likely that they are not the elect. Christ promised that what we bind on earth, He will bind in heaven. In other words, when we take discipline seriously, He will uh, bring discipline into their lives. And I've seen this in case after case where God pursues an excommunicated person and brings such misery and such pain into their lives, He brings them uh, to repentance. Now, of course, I've seen other cases where nothing's happened. Absolutely nothing has happened. And apparently God did not love that person who was kicked out because Hebrews chapter 12 says that everybody whom he loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And he goes on to say, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. It's a scary thing to me when I see somebody who is excommunicated from the church Nothing happens. Everything's going on hunky-dory. To me, it's an, an evidence. doesn't matter how much they claim to be believers. It's an evidence that their hearts uh, have never been regenerated. Now, in the case of that pastor, God's discipline and death was a loving way of restoring him. Now, can I guarantee that this is what happened to Saul? No, I cannot. But let me share from this passage some hints as to why I think that this may have been the case. Uh, first of all, I've already mentioned that God did an amazing miracle for Saul. He did not do it for the median. He did it for Saul. And if he wasn't elect, it doesn't make sense that God would even bother to do that. To me, it shows that God cared. Second, God had, asked, um, had Samuel ask the kind of pointed questions that are designed to bring confession and repentance. The first question probes Saul's poverty of heart and whether or not he's going to be honest with God or if he's going to continue to live a lie. Uh, verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? It's not exactly a polite question. It's not designed to put Saul at ease. It's designed to probe Saul's heart. Why should I give you the time of day, Saul? Why are you bothering me? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Now to me this shows a different Saul than the Saul of chapter 13 and the chapters that follow that. And he's different on four levels. And I, I don't have this in your notes, so you'll just have to uh, take your own notes. As I list them, first of all, back in those chapters, Saul didn't want to hear from Samuel. And when Samuel came and spoke to him anyway, uh, he didn't want to ever see Samuel again or hear from Samuel again, and he didn't. Okay? And, and, and of course, this is a pretty ignorant and rebellious way of um, uh, seeking Samuel. But the fact that he wants to hear from Samuel again shows that there is at least some attitude change. He hadn't wanted to hear from Samuel in any chapter after chapter 15. Second, in the earlier chapters, Saul wouldn't admit that God had departed from him. As late as chapter 26, Saul thought that God was on his side and Saul was talking to others and even thinking within his own head that God was on his side. Everything's okay between me and God. Have you ever seen this with people who are backslidden in rebellion? I've seen this over and over again. The, the self-deception is sometimes remarkable where people are acting like unbelievers and, no, I'm okay. God's okay with me. Uh, they have no issue there. But now for the first time, Saul admits, God has departed from me. I'm no longer even going to pretend otherwise. God has departed from me. Third, back then, Saul didn't seem too concerned about God's guidance. Okay? In fact, he didn't kind of like God's guidance too much. And now suddenly he is heartbroken that God is so distant and that God won't speak to him. He wants to hear from God. That's a change. Fourth, back then, Samuel didn't, uh, Saul did not, uh, didn't ask Samuel, what should I do? What he consistently did is he minimized his sin 
and he only wanted God to change his opinion. Okay? It wasn't, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? No, it's God, please, could you change your opinion about me? So his seeking of Samuel's prophetic insight that you may reveal to me what I should do shows a change in attitude. He knows Saul is a curmudgeon, you know, who's not going to be polite. He's just as crusty as he ever was. You know, this is one of the interesting things that people's personalities seem to follow them into the afterlife. <laughs> he's, he's still as crusty old Samuel here when he's talking. So that's kind of an interesting thing there. But um, Saul wanted prophetic revelation anyway. Now, maybe I'm reading too much uh, into this passage, but to me, those four hints are indicators that God is indeed doing a work of grace in Saul's heart. First of all, through the means of discipline. Second, through the means of the miracle. Third, through the means of Samuel's in-your-face dialogue. He's been progressively working in Saul's heart. So that's just the first question. The second question probes Saul's willingness to acknowledge his wrong and to mourn. Verse 16. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? So he's probing. Was your previous statement that you just gave, is that a, a, an act of despair? Or is that a statement of faith? Okay, if God is really your enemy, there's really no point in talking to me because I'm his prophet. Okay? Are you coming to me as a substitute? Now, again, I admit that it's possible he's simply rebuking him for uh, using a medium. But again, I ask, millions of other people use mediums as well, and Samuel didn't come up to warn them. Okay, so why is God doing this? I, I think there's something more going on in the passage than simply a rebuke, though it is a rebuke. There is a rebuke there as well. Uh, but Samuel, I believe, is giving Saul a chance to repent, and the probing continues with a series of statements. Let's uh, take a look at them, beginning at verse 17. He says, And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. Now, in effect, with these statements, what Samuel is doing is he's making Saul reevaluate all of the bad responses that Saul has ever given uh, to God in the past. And what I've done is I've rephrased them. Uh, in a question, in the form of a question. First of all, oh, do you finally acknowledge that God's word that he spoke through me in chapters 13 and 15 was true? I think that's the thrust of the statement. Uh, you didn't want to listen to me before. Why do you want to listen to me now? Think about it, Saul. Think about it. What is going on here? He goes on, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. These words were designed to hurt. They were like a scalpel that was cutting out parts of the heart that had been resistant to God previously. In effect, he's giving Saul an opportunity to acknowledge that his kingdom really belongs to David. Now, I'd feel a whole lot more comfortable uh, with uh, the conclusion that this scalpel actually produced repentance if Saul had uh, sent messengers to David and said, okay, I'm resigning. You're the king. You fight these Philistines. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, people could respond and say, well, we know he didn't do that, but he knows he's going to die in a few hours. So he might have considered you know, doing that to be rebellion against God's will. We're not told. But every question, every statement that Samuel gives is designed to be able to accomplish that work. I want us to at least consider that. The next statement is in verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. I mean, it's just ouch, ouch, ouch. Why does God do that with us? Just doesn't let things go. He just keeps bringing it back, bringing it back to us. Now, I've summarized the impact of that scalpel cut with a question in point three. Do you acknowledge that you should have given radical obedience to God's command concerning Amalek? Genuine repentance is not half-hearted. It has to agree with God on all points. Otherwise, the sin continues to simmer. If it's, not, if it's a half-hearted repentance, there's never true healing. It, 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 uh, not simmers, what's it? Festers under the surface. Um, ben and I watched um, one of the episodes a couple of weeks ago from Band of Brothers. It's the one where that Dutch farmer uh, you know, he comes into his barn and here is this guy that's been shot and uh, he's 
very uncomfortably digging into this wound in his shoulder with a knife, trying to dig the shrapnel out. It's just like, ooh, it's a gory scene. And yet that shrapnel has to come out, otherwise it's going to fester. This is what genuine repentance is about. It's digging in. Yes, it's painful, but it's getting the shrapnel out. He goes on. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Do you acknowledge that the overwhelming Philistine presence today is God's act of discipline upon you? If you cannot embrace what God is doing here, there's no genuine repentance. And so Samuel is probing. Why have you called me? Is it for self-preservation or are you finally willing to submit to God's will? Will you go to battle and submit to the discipline that God's going to dish out to you tomorrow? The next statement exposes the fact that Saul's sins have caused many in Israel to suffer. Hey, Saul, it's not just you who are suffering. Your sins have exposed the entire army to danger. And so, again, that's a statement that probes Saul's heart as to whether he's willing to accept that fact or whether he's going to run. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. I think the fact that Saul goes into battle shows that he's finally willing to take his medicine. He's no longer running. He's no longer trying to protect his life. Next sentence as well. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now with that knowledge, oh, okay, tomorrow is my death day. He could have taken that knowledge and said, I'm going to run. I'm not even going to be in the battle, so I can't be killed. But he doesn't do that. Uh, he doesn't do that. Uh, I believe he fights because he has submitted to the message, uh, at least partially. And that is in part why Samuel says that Saul would be with him the next day. Now, it's only hinted at, but I believe it's strongly hinted at. And I've gotten ahead of myself already uh, because point two is supposed to be, what's the purpose of Samuel's questions? I've already got into some of the results, so we're going to skip over point A. Uh, right now, but I think I've already shown that verses 15 through 19 strongly hint that Saul had indeed repented. We can't know for sure, but there are a couple of other hints uh, that we have as well. Uh, consider verse 20. Uh, he had already come to the medium fasting. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. He had been fasting. Now, you could interpret that two ways. You could interpret, oh, this is just Saul up to his old manipulation. Maybe if I fast, I can manipulate God into, you know, being on my side. Or you could say, no, this is the beginnings at least, not a perfect repentance, but the beginnings of repentance in his life. But let's just assume the worst. Let's assume he wanted to save his life prior to coming here. Uh, we already know his going to the medium is consistent with the fact it's not a full repentance because he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. But what about Saul's changed attitudes once Samuel spoke to him? Did they contribute to a different kind of fasting in verses 21 through 23? Maybe he's now fasting in repentance. Uh, we aren't told. Uh, beginning at verse 21. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. Again, these are only tiny hints, but fasting often accompanies uh, repentance, and maybe he just felt he couldn't eat while he's prostrate before God as God's dealing with his heart on, on the floor. But then the text indicates at some point he's talked out of his fasting, and logically, if what Samuel said was inevitable, there's no point in trying to avoid it. There's no point in even fasting anymore. The best course of action would be just submit to what Samuel said, get on with the battle. So his servants, together with a woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Now this would have taken some hours. You know, when we were out in Ethiopia, I'd go visit a, 
a church. We'd arrive there about six o'clock, 15 minutes later, they're killing the calf and we're not eating till midnight. <laughs> so it d- does take a while for them to go through this. And so the question comes, if all he needs is strength to go back and to fight, why doesn't he just eat some bread and some figs? That would have done the job. And there's more going on here uh, than that. And this too may be a hint that Saul finally had come to completely accept God's will. He wouldn't run from battle because he knows that's where God is going to take him. This is going to be his final act of faith. And he's uh, not going to continue fasting because he's finally come to believe God's word and that God's not going to change his mind. This could indeed be resignation, and it makes better sense of what commentators say is really an unusual feast here. It's a feast fit for a king. It would be an expensive a feast, not just a pragmatic getting of strength. There's something symbolic about this. Almost all of the commentators say that uh, for our benefit, there, the author seems to be uh, showing a comparison between Saul, who is being fed by a woman after his death is predicted, and David, who had been fed by a woman, namely Abigail, after his success uh, has been predicted. And again, you could take that either way. You could take that symbolism in different directions. Now, the last words and into the next chapter indicate that rather than running away, which would be self-preservation, and by the way, this is all that he was preoccupied with since chapter 13, was preserving his throne, preserving his life, preserving everything about him. Rather than doing that, uh, he is now facing his death like a man. Uh, He's not trying to preserve his life. And there's one more hint that Saul may have repented, and that's in 2 Samuel 1, verse 23, where David says, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. But he says, in their death they were not divided. Now we know for sure Jonathan was a believer uh, who was headed toward glory and paradise, and so if if, if, if Jonathan and his father were not divided in death, that means Sheol did not divide them. That would be an indicator that uh, he went to paradise. And of course, that's the most natural reading of Samuel's words in 1 Samuel 28, verse 19, that Saul and Jonathan would be with Samuel in paradise. And again, for me, it's really hard to see with the great gulf between paradise and hell Uh, to say, you know, when Samuel says, you will be with me, to say, no, he ended up in hell. It's just awkward for me to see that. And then this would make better sense out of 1 Samuel 10, verse 9, that seems to indicate that Saul was regenerated in that passage. It says, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart, and then immediately it says that the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, being given another heart sure seems like regeneration, And saying that Saul and Jonathan were not parted and that Samuel says that Saul and Jonathan would be with him sure seems like he is in paradise. Can I guarantee that? I cannot. I believe God leaves it unclear so that we will not presume upon his grace. But let me conclude with some applications. If my thesis is correct, which I am personally convinced that it is, then this passage really, really highlights the fact that we are justified, we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and the finished work of Christ alone to the glory of God alone has nothing to do with how messed up our lives are or how good our lives are. It has everything to do with the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, it highlights the five points of Calvinism, and especially the fifth point, the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints indicates God will do anything that is necessary, including your misery, maybe even your death. He will do anything that is necessary, even the raising of a Samuel from the dead, to make sure that you persevere in His grace. We persevere only because He preserves us. And third, it gives us hope that it's never too late to pray for backslidden people of God to repent and turn around. Uh, by the way, some of you have had relatives who have uh, turned away. There's a great book, uh, Barbara Come Home. I'm trying to remember the author's name. It's an uh, OPC pastor, um, Miller. 
uh, wrote the book, Barbara Come Home, incredibly encouraging book. This is a, a girl, a daughter of theirs, who uh, just went off into drugs and worked with gangs and all kinds of, it was just horrible, horrible lifestyle and how God restored her, brought her back. And it could be an encouraging book that you could lend out uh, to other people. Fourth, uh, it highlights that God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. Now, on the other hand, it illustrates how far believers can fall and how far they can be victimized by Satan when they give Satan legal ground, as Saul had done through his rebellion. Can Christians be demonized? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they can. They can't be owned. They can't be possessed, as it were. But they can be demonized, and the New Testament is quite clear on that. And so 1 Corinthians 10 indicates these kinds of historical passages were given to us as warnings that we should not act like that, that we should not continue in a rebellious state because we will get it. Uh, God uh, says that there comes a time when you cross over an invisible line where he says, look, I'm going to take you out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says there were many in Corinth who died because of their rebellion against God. 1 John chapter 5 says that there is a sin that a brother, very interesting he uses that word, a sin that a brother can commit that is unto death. And if that brother has committed a sin unto death, he says there is no prayer that's going to stop that death from happening. You might as well not even pray for that person because God is going to take them out. In effect, like my pastor friend, yes, he repented. Yes, he was restored to the Lord. But these people and my pastor friend were of no more use to God on planet Earth, and he took them out. And so this speaks both of the severity of God as well as of the grace of God. Uh, though we are secure in justification, it does not erase the disastrous consequences of sin. And so whether or not Saul actually repented, I am grateful for the generosity of God in making such repentance possible. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and the reminders of how you look at sin and how you look at discipline and how loving discipline really is. And we thank you, Father, that uh, no one can pluck us out of your hand, uh, that uh, you are a God who is far more interested in our holiness and our relationship to you than you are in our comfort. And I pray, Father, you would do anything uh, to stir up our lives out of our rebellion and into uh, re restoration and fellowship with you. We want to be a holy church. We want to be the church militant. We want to have an impact, Father, upon the community round about us. And so we pray, have your will, have your way. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven, Father. Take us and use us and revive us and cause us, Father, to not be stumbling around in the darkness like Saul did. Uh, Father, we know that even a David could fall into the things that Saul did apart from your preserving grace. And so we cling to you, Father. By faith, we cling to you. And we say, Father, use us, preserve us, uh, as Jude says, you are able to keep us from stumbling, and we pray that you would keep each person here from stumbling. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.